Hey, I'm in Japan. I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. James Rollins will join us to discuss genetic modifications. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. fiction to the stuff of science fact, but how far can the technology be pushed? Will such modifications be used on humans to increase performance both mentally and physically? Well, these are the issues that form the backdrop for the new novel Altar of Eden by Mr. James Rollins. Mr. Rollins is the best-selling author of numerous works of fiction, including Ice Hunt and the Signal Force novels, and he joins us today to discuss his newest release. Mr. Rollins, thank you very much for joining us on the Rock Science Show. Well, certainly our pleasure, and it's really a fascinating new novel that you've written, and I'm just curious, uh, how did scientific topics that are introduced in the book strike your fancy? Well, it came about because, first of all, I knew I eventually wanted to write a novel featuring a veterinarian, which is my original profession. I guess I still do a little bit of volunteer work, but now I write full-time. And so uh, my background is in uh, evolutionary biology, and so teaming up my undergraduate degree with my graduate degree, I was looking for a topic of maybe dealing with genetic manipulation, and there's some, some odd things going on in that world, and I've collected and collated a bunch of different uh, odd facts about what's going on in different scientific circles, and then started putting the story together. What was it about the particular aspects of genetic engineering and evolutionary biology that, that caught your fancy? Well, it's, it's two things. When I'm writing a, a novel, I'm, I'm writing basically to entertain, but uh, I also like when you turn that last page or you close the cover of the book, you're left with a little bit of something to think about, and at the end of a, for one of my novels, I sort of lay out what's true and what's not. And it's sort of the science, to, to me, is a great vehicle for exploring issues of morality, issues of right and wrong. And in this case, when it comes to dealing with genetic manipulation, it's a section that's pretty rife with controversy, you know, about cloning, about stem cell research. There's some of the tidbits that, that came out of that box of notes for this novel was about some of the transgenics that are going on, where they're mixing genes of one animal into another. You know, I live up in the Sierra Nevadas up in Nevada, and just around the corner from me, there's a ranch in Reno that has 50 sheep that they're, they're growing partially human livers inside uh, and hearts. And even creepier, they actually are, are incorporating human neurons in their brains, pigs that they've created with human blood. There's, they put human nuclei into cow eggs and have been growing them. So there's just a lot of odd things going on in that, in that industry that I thought, you know, someone maybe with a moral compass pointing a little bit the wrong direction, got a hold of that, what might happen. And oftentimes do you think that science moves in a direction without a moral compass? There's a, a quote I have at the very beginning of this novel. I pulled it from H.G. Uh, Wells' uh, novel, uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau. It's a quote that says, The study of nature makes man at last as remorseless as, as nature. And there's a, I think that's a, some, what apps sometimes in the scientific circles, that if you know, something can be done, there's probably some lab somewhere in the world where it is being done. You look at the South Koreans with their claims of achieving different levels of cloning. 
if something can be done, sometimes scientists are going to try to do that. And so, you know, there's scientists that are doing things appropriately, and there are scientists that are, I think, probably pushing the boundaries just because they can, sort of like that mountain, you know, why do you climb a mountain? Because it's there. You know, why are you doing this piece of science? Well, because I can. Not necessarily having a resolute reason for doing so. For, let's take cloning, for example. You know, there's a lot of controversy about cloning. Uh, there's a facility featured in my novel called the called ACRES, which stands for the Audubon Center for the Research of Endangered Species, and they're doing some cutting-edge research in regards to pulling different species from the brink of extinction. They're doing cloning along with embryo hybridization uh, and different other techniques. I visited that facility and I've seen their clone cats that they have on the facility, and that's the one time I think that you know cloning is appropriate. They're using this tool, cloning, as one tool in a toolbox to basically try to increase the number of that breeding population of that extinct, extinct species in an attempt to keep them from tumbling over that edge. So there's a right and wrong way of proceeding when it comes to some of these cutting-edge fields of science, and I think at this point some uh, scientists are going a little bit uh, in, in funny directions. For example, one of the things I discovered is that there are certain U.S. corporations who shall remain nameless and science defense contractors who basically to circumvent U.S. laws in regards to animal rights, in regards to uh, animal husbandry, in regards to restrictions about scientific research, are opening secret labs beyond U.S. borders in the Caribbean, in Mexico, and South America, some of the Eastern Bloc countries, and they really have no regulation in these labs, so anything and everything is probably being, being done in these labs. And, and really no oversight at all from any kind of agency? Not at all. That's why they're opening the labs, you know, so they, they, they literally don't have any oversight. And that's a little frightening when you're dealing with weaponized microbes or, you know, some of the th- other things that, are, that I've discovered that they're working on. It, it, what a lot of people aren't aware of is there's a lot of been a lot of talk about private defense contractors hired by the government in war situations like Blackwater that supplies bodyguards and ancillary support in Iraq. But what's less known is that there's a slew of scientific private defense contractors paid for by the government with grants and funds. But that's, it's become a very cutthroat industry, a lot of competition for that grant money. And to try to hedge that bet, some of these corporations, like I said, are opening labs beyond our borders so that they can sort of get a, a little uh, extra boost, a little little foothold, and hopefully gather some more funds. Well, the novel sort of certainly explores some of these issues. There's a discovery of interesting animals. Right. There's a fishing trawler that, that crashes into a barrier island in the Mississippi Delta, and my main character, who's a veterinarian, she happens to be called in because there's something not quite right with those animals. They discovered that they seem to be genetically altered in a very odd fashion, and that they seem to be demonstrating sort of what's called a, a scientific term, term called atavism, or a, basically genetic throwbacks, where a trait that's been lost from a species reappears in a species and so I thought I was basically being creative and I have this python that has fully articulating reptilian limbs sticking out of its side so it can both crawl and slither you know hearkening back to the time before snakes lost their limbs during the evolutionary past no, to me, I was always wondering, where is that gene, where is that, you know, that section of DNA that produces a reptilian limb? Obviously, it's somewhere still in, the, in a snake's code, but what's allowing that to be expressed again? You know, why is it not being expressed now, and what turned it back on again? And, uh, you know, I, like I said, I thought I was making this up until I just finished the first draft of the novel, and I received an email from one of my readers who's, who generally sends me some great articles that have I've incorporated in my novels and acknowledged her in the past. But you sent me this article about a group of Chinese kids that found a, a snake with a single clawed foot sticking out of its side. It got a lot of press about that time, too. I have to go to my website. You can actually see a picture of the snake. 
And at the end of her email to me, she, she notes, you, know, you should really write about this. <laughs> and I wrote her back, and said, well, oddly enough, I already have. But to me, that's just fascinating uh, that somewhere there's only a small portion of our DNA that's, that's considered to be functional. The other, like 95%, is considered to be junk DNA, though there's a lot of research on how much not quite an accurate term for what that t- long tail of DNA we're carrying. So we have 95% of our DNA that doesn't seem to be doing much of anything, and here we have snakes that are being born with limbs sticking out of their side. And so to me, I'm just wondering, you know, how much of our evolutionary past is locked in that junk DNA, and what happens if someone can start unlocking those keys and, and, and returning bits of our evolutionary past back into, into the real world? Is there any indication of how much of that junk DNA can actually be recovered and functional? Well, it's, it's one of the slightly frightening things that in regards to exploring human DNA, there's only a small part of that's functional. The question when you start manipulating that, who knows what's quite going to arrive. The, the current theory is that a lot of the junk DNA is stuff we've, basically biological garbage that we've accumulated over the centuries, such as bits of old viral or bacterial code. But like I said, from this evidence that atavism does occur, it does suggest that part of that junk DNA is, does hold the pieces of our evolutionary past. Even though it's, it's not being expressed presently, we do know from past that we're able to turn genes on and off at our control, and eventually people are going to start playing with that. And to me, that's you know, like you know, children juggling dynamite. and They're not quite sure what's going to be unleashed. If you turn on a gene, you don't quite know how it's going to express. And the worry, of course, is then how is this be extended to possibly genetic engineering of humans? Yeah, and that well, probably one of the key parts of, of the reason I started writing this uh, book was there was a an article that was put out by uh, or a statement put out by the Jasons, which is a Pentagon sort of think tank. They're a group of civilian scientists that supply uh, basically cutting edge information to the, the to the military, to the defense, specifically the Defense Department's research and development wing. And they produced a paper basically stating that they recommend that the American military push ahead with its own performance enhancement research to make sure that U.S. enemies don't suddenly become smarter, faster, better able to endure the harsh realities of war. And that's a little, a little frightening. I mean, they're, they're particularly concerned about new drugs that promote brain plasticity or rewiring the mind. They've been playing with doing neural implants. They've put implants into sharks to be able to basically radio control sharks which, again, I'm not quite sure what the purpose in doing that is. But, you know, they've also done it with fish, rats, and monkeys where they put in brain implants and they've been able to basically drive them like remote-controlled cars. Mm-hmm. So the question we have is how far are they going to push that into the human field? Uh, at this point, they're already doing different types of pharmaceutical research with soldiers to enhance their ability to withstand their ability to function without sleep. And so that's already being actively done, and the question is how far are they going to pull that? And, again, that's one of those situations that becomes a pro or con issue. Is you know the the pro side is you know this this research potentially can save lives, can protect soldiers, can increase their healing times, can uh, keep them protected, react faster, think faster. But of course, the cons on that is that it's you know it's a little scary when we start manipulating the human. You know, how, are we going to start artificially pushing human evolution into places we don't we can't quite imagine even yet? Mm-hmm. Have people tried to address this in any kind of systematic way in terms of setting down guidelines for what can and can't be done? No, I mean, it's so cutting edge, I mean, and, and the research is, is accelerating so fast that there is very, very little control, especially when it comes to uh, doing research on soldiers. So a lot of times you do have a tendency to, as a, as a soldier, to write off some of your rights in regards to having research done on your body. So, again, it's, there's some regulation, but in my opinion, not nearly enough. And a lot of it, again, is being done in labs beyond U.S. borders, so who knows what actually is being done out there. Hmm. So definitely more oversight. (laughs) Indeed. 
all of your work is written primarily in, in novel form, but it's usually driven by some sort of science behind it. Do you find it's easier to address a lot of these issues as a novel rather than sort of a nonfiction work? Again, my main goal, like I said before, was is to write an entertaining novel, and I've always been fascinated by science, and it's one of the reasons I went into veterinary medicine is, you know, I love science, I love medicine, I love animals, and so you'll see that theme throughout my novels is the line between technological advancement and technological threat, and it's just not the cogs and the wheels of that technology that really fascinate me. It's more, again, how those cogs and the wheels sort of challenge the moral compass of my main characters. It, it allows me to raise a lot of issues in an exciting setting, hopefully when you close the book, you're left with some things to think about, you know, some of these new cutting-edge science sorts of things that I raised in the novel. Do you have any particular insights for careers as a veterinarian? Yeah, but this is the first time in any of my career, I've written 22 books, and this is the first time I've actually featured a veterinarian. My clients used to ask me when they began to suspect I was writing, which was basically a poorly kept secret. You know, I had a poster in my lobby, get your cat spayed, get a free book. <laughs> so, uh, you know, eventually questions began to arise. You know, Jim, you're, you're a successful veterinarian. Now you're writing. Why don't you write about a veterinarian, why don't you do an all-creatures great and small or do a Marley and me type of, of novel? And you know, my answer was, well, you know, not enough people die in those James Herrick novels. And, and uh, you know, if I was going to do a Marley and me, Marley would be probably rabid. To me, uh, my writing was an escape. And so uh, I went on these wild adventures. But now that I've, you know, no longer practiced full-time for about five years, you know, I, I thought now would be a good time to get uh, veterinary a little bit of street cred. You know, there's been a lot of medical thrillers and legal thrillers, so I thought maybe it's time to have the uh, the first veterinary thriller. Uh, <laughs> get my profession a little bit of little bit of street cred out there. Uh, do you anticipate seeing this as a series? You know, initially when I wrote Alter of Eden, it was a standalone. My Sigma series has been going on now for the past seven years, and I didn't really want to start another series. I just wanted to, my early books were all standalone adventures. And so I wanted to sort of return to my roots and take a little break from the series and write this standalone adventure featuring a veterinarian. But, you know, I sort of grew attached to the characters, and I visited Acres uh, a couple times after I'd written the novel. They were actually sort of quite thrilled that I blew their place up and killed a bunch of their personnel. <laughs> but they were, I, I sent them a case of books. So, again, I, I've sort of grown attached to those characters, and I, I could see myself going ahead and, and visiting those characters again, especially since I just came across a new idea for, from a scientific angle that I would like to play with with those characters. Mm. So we may be seeing Lorna and Jack again. Mm. Where, where do you get your ideas for books? Oh, that dreaded question we all hate to hear. <laughs> indeed, writers. indeed. Where do you get your ideas from? Because <laughs> most of us hate to hear that because we don't really know. <laughs> uh, but again, most of it is because I have a tendency just to keep my antennas up. You know, my Sigma Force novels are generally a mix of historical mysteries tied with uh, some cutting-edge science. And so I have a tendency to subscribe to a lot of different magazines, Scientific America, National Geographic, Discover, New Scientist, Smithsonian. And whenever I come across an article that either... Um, has a bit of science that makes me go, well, what if, or a piece of history that and maybe ends in a mystery. I'll, I'll try to find some way of connecting those. So I, I cut those articles out. I, I watch a lot of History Channel programs and a lot of Science Channel programs and make a bunch of notes. They just basically all end up piled up into a box. It, it's messy. It's disorganized. Probably somewhere at the bottom there's mice running around. But I, I like that chaos because odd things end up churning together in that box uh, as I sort of sift through it a piece of science that I would never connect with a piece of history, but because they randomly end up together in that box, I eventually say, hey, maybe there's a story there, and I'll follow it. Sometimes it'll dry up, but other times a story will generate from that. So I'm secretly fearful that someone will come and grab that box and run away with it, and I will lose all ability to write. <laughs> Some sort of random uh, plot generator might work instead. <laughs> there you go. Um, all right, well, uh, I'm curious if you just maybe have some uh, final words uh, regarding the issues raised in your new book, Alter of Eden. 
Well, like I said, my main goal is to entertain, and that's uh, hopefully, you know, people are going to be reading that book well into the night, but uh, hopefully some of the issues I raise in regards to human experimentation, animal experimentation, and where is the line drawn between intelligence, human intelligence and animal intelligence. Hopefully uh, it'll uh, have people reading that back, those notes about what's true and what's not in the novel, and, and following from there. All right, well, the new book is called uh, Ultra of Eden, and Mr. Rollins, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you very much. And you were just listening to Mr. James Rollins discussing genetic modifications. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and world-famous Question of the Week. So, stay tuned. As I walk through the valley where I harvest my grain, I take a look at my wife and realize she's very plain. But that's just perfect for an Amish like me. You know I shun fancy things like electricity. At 4.30 in the morning, I'm milking cows. Jebediah feeds the chickens and Jacob plows. Fool, and I've been milking and plowing so long that even Ezekiel thinks that my mind is gone. I'm a man of the land, I'm into discipline. Got a Bible in my hand and a beard on my chin. But if I finish all of my chores and you finish thine, then tonight we're gonna party like it's 1699. We've been spending most our lives. Here we go. It's uh, time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know for the following five people whether you would rate them as atavistic or evolved. Maybe no reason why. (laughs) Uh, You ready to play the game? I think I've prepared. Okay, very good. Here we go. Person number one, atavistic or evolved talk show host, Jerry Springer. I would say he's evolved. You see, he basically found a, uh, he's, he's tapped into a mindset that's become quite popular. I don't think you just, re- I don't think you just randomly fall into that. <laughs> I think that guy's a lot sharper than people think. Now, he plays a little bit dumb, but I think he's actually a pretty, pretty sharp guy. Hmm. Well, number two is the uh, pop star Lady Gaga. It, she's almost the reverse of atavism. Instead of moving backwards, I think she's moving forward. I think she's evolving in, 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 in some strange manner. So I, I'm, I, she's somewhere, I think she's neither of those. Okay. She's, moving, she's, moving, she's, she's evolving right before our eyes. Uh, number three is famed uh, biologist Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins. He's actually one of my personal heroes, so I'm definitely going to have to say uh, evolved. I read every book he ever wrote. he's written. Uh, one of my earlier novels, uh, Black Order, dealt with the, the controversy between evolution and, and uh, creationism. And uh, so it's a topic, uh, being from an evolutionary background, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by that whole, that whole controversy. Mm-hmm. Number four is the, the former CEO of Microsoft, Bill Gates. I'm going to call him atavistic. Mm. The, the, he's a very brilliant businessman, but I still think uh, a lot of the stuff is borrowed. Uh-huh. You know, Steve Jobs... I would say advanced. He's, he's more cutting edge. Of course, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Mac addict, so what do you expect me to say? All right, number five, finally, Atavistic or Evolved, the golfer Tiger Woods. Tiger, Tiger Woods. You know, I'm just not even going to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a 
there's a lot of danger in that question in, in either response. Okay, well, we'll give you a pass then um, on that. Well, uh, Mr. Rollins, I, I want to thank you for sticking around playing the game, the Grokatron 5000, and again, of course, talking about your new book, Altar of Eden. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. It's been our pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.